0: Welcome to the Last Negroes at Harvard podcast. I'm Kent Garrett. There were 18 of us in the Harvard class of 1963. We were all born in the 1940s and are now pushing 80. We have survived Jim Crow, the civil rights struggle, the Vietnam War, the war on drugs, the war on terror, the war on poverty, the age of Obama, and now the age of Trump. We have a lot to say before we leave the planet. In this episode, our guest is Carrie Polk, associate professor at Amherst College and author of the book, Contagions of Empire, Scientific Racism, Sexuality, and Black Military Workers Abroad, 1898 to 1948. On the Zoom session with me, are classmates Fred Easter from Minneapolis, John Woodford from Ann Arbor, Jerry Secundi from Pasadena, George Jones from Atlanta, Connie McDougall from New York City, plus classmates Bill Collins joins us from Aiken, South Carolina, Greg Allen from Los Angeles, Marcy Bensock from New York City, Cindy Waddle from Tuscany, Italy, Mason Morford from Freeport, Maine, and Professor Adrian Jones from Morehouse College. Here's author Carrie Polk.
1: You know, it's, it's been a book that, that I'm happy to, uh, to see out in the world, specifically because it uh, is in some ways a family story, although uh, my family doesn't really appear in it, uh, only in the preface. Uh, it's a family story in, in the sense that I'm writing about African Americans uh, who served in the US military and who served outside of the United States uh, in the first 50 years of the 20th century, if we we count 1898 as part of the 20th century. Uh, And uh, my grandfathers uh, both served uh, in uh, the U.S. military and the army during World War II. Uh, And though I didn't get a chance to really interview them before they they passed on, there was a way in which uh, a lot of the work that I began to read and uncover in my own research uh, had a way of, of making me think about their experiences, specifically the idea of, in some ways, how lucky I am to be alive given the numbers of, 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 of American soldiers who were killed in World War II. Uh, and so this the idea that my, that my grandparents, uh, mm-hmm. my grandfathers actually made it through uh, uh, the war. Uh, and also the fact that, uh, that they served in a lot of the places I write about in the book, uh, that itself uh, was something that I only really found out uh, when the book was largely complete. So the book it's I think also has been important for me uh, in thinking about what it means for me to grow up uh, as the son of, of a, a father who served in the US military, in many ways thinking about uh, a family that, that lived overseas. Uh, so both though my mother wasn't enlisted in the Air Force, I mean, I think anyone uh, who, uh, uh, any military spouse would let you know that that whether or not uh, they are uh, seen as 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 part of the military they're definitely part of the military and so the fact that 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 i was born in california in edwards air force base uh and um um, and then myself uh, my mom dad my brother and sister uh, we lived in england for eight years and then okinawa uh, for four more years where i graduated high school Uh, all of those experiences uh, have led me to think you know, broadly and sometimes uh, critically about what it meant for me to be a part of the US military uh, and to live overseas uh, while trying to understand my identity uh, as an American, as an African American, but having uh, spent most of my childhood, uh, basically from I'd say five until 18, living outside of the United States. So I wanted to use this book as an opportunity to think about the history of this movement of, of, of African-American soldiers. And I begin to use the language of workers. Um, and that for some people might be a controversial term. Uh, I don't mean to deny the idea that that, that that Black soldiers or any soldiers, you know, aren't in fact soldiers and aren't inspired by patriotism. But I wanted to think about the actual labor that they, that they, they do while stationed uh, um, abroad outside of, of the United States and to think about what it meant uh, for for African-Americans at the turn of the 20th century to understand that the work that they were doing was crucial to the political progress of African-Americans back in the United States. Uh, And so really thinking about that labor, the political labor as well as the actual grunt and care labor that Black women and Black men uh, did uh, both for themselves uh, as, as, let's say, patriots in their own right, but also believing that the work that they would do uh, would help them uh, achieve uh, a, a greater a, a sense of uh, citizenship uh, for both themselves and their communities back in the United States. Well, hey,
0: I
2: wonder we... if you could talk about that contagion part of your, right. your title, about the sort of pseudoscience and uh, Black soldiers. I found that really interesting. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm happy. Uh, you know, I have to say it's, it's sort of, uh, this wasn't, this was, I'm, I'm not sure that I, I knew that I would encounter this. And that's the cool thing for me. I love uh, um, um, archival research because you sometimes just uncover things. So when I first began doing research for this book, uh, I thought that I would only start in World War II and then come up to the present time. But the more I began to dig, I began to find stories that I had never heard before. And that when I talked to uh, uh, my parents, they'd never heard about. So so Contagions of Empire begins uh, in 1898. And it begins uh, in uh, uh, the Spanish-American War, sometimes understood as the Spanish-Cuban-American War. Um, And Contagions comes from the idea that in 1898, uh, the U.S. military was, of course, it was uh, led by, by by white officers. And there was a sense that the fight uh, uh, against Spain was a fight uh, against, let's say, the new world and the old world. And that itself was also a racial fight in the sense that that white American men needed to prove <laughs> to the world that they could best an old colonial foe. Uh, and so it was the idea of white men fighting against Uh, other white men uh but one of the things that uh that was uh given the fact that that the site of war was cuba yellow fever uh was uh was endemic to cuba and it was clear to both the spanish and the americans that that they had to deal with the fact of the contagion of yellow fever uh and that itself was going to play uh, a particular role in this in this fight um there had been now. What's interesting about 1898 for me is that this is a moment in which there is no American consensus on the vector of yellow fever. So today we, you know, you know, we, we it's pretty clear that we know that that yellow fever uh, spread by by mosquitoes. But that was something that was still under debate. But what had been known uh, and sort of understood today, we can call it as pseudoscience that in the 18th and 19th century that whenever there were yellow fever outbreaks happening in the, in the American South, uh, enslaved uh, and, and free Black people, particularly Black women, were used in order to take care of the plantation proper. Uh, and it was because there was a belief that African-Americans and people of African descent had a natural immunity uh, to, to tropical diseases. And this was an idea that 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 actually helped Uh, to justify the enslavement of people of African descent in the 18th and 19th century. It was the idea that, oh, well, we need Black people because Black people are, they can withstand uh, yellow fever outbreaks uh, in the Caribbean and in the American South. Now, that itself, that belief uh, um, uh, flew in the face of actual evidence, even on the ground, right? The fact that, in fact, enslaved people and Black people did, in fact, die from yellow fever. Um, and, uh, and this is something that, and even in Africa, this was something that, that occurred. But this rationale was something that, uh, that, that Southern physicians really, uh, they, they believed uh, and they popularized uh, through the 18th and 19th century. So once we're in 1898 uh, and American military officials are, are saying, well, you know, we need to win this war but we have to deal with the fact of yellow fever. This was a moment in which there was a, a new push to, to enlist African-Americans, specifically to work as laborers uh, to do the jobs uh, that, that many, uh, that's, or let's say, let me say some white units uh, refused to do. And so uh, uh, around April uh, of 1898 uh, is when uh, people like Booker T. Washington Approached the Secretary of War uh, and said, Hey, listen, you know, it'd be great if if we could enlist large numbers of Black folks uh, to serve who want to demonstrate their, their patriotism in this war. And in many ways, Booker T. Washington and other black leaders of that time, they were really calling upon the memory of the Civil War uh, as a moment in which African Americans decided that fighting for their freedom was a way to showcase their patriotism. Uh, And so this was something that was very important to many Black leaders. Uh, And so, and some of these Black leaders also believed in the idea that Black folks were immune to yellow fever. Uh, Some, I think some people were a bit more skeptical. Uh, You had Ida B. Wells, who actually uh, wrote a letter of support uh, of um, of African-Americans serving in this effort. Uh, And and I think that it's an interesting moment. Uh, For me, I think that it speaks a lot to what's happening now with COVID-19 in terms of how we see uh, uh, the different workers uh, who are most at risk, uh, uh, but who are also uh, putting their lives on the line. So, you know, the folks who, who work uh, um, um, in, uh, in grocery stores, uh, delivery uh, uh, folks, um, also people who are working uh, nurses, quite, quite frankly. Uh, and so the U.S. military back to 1898 uh, they began to create what, what, what were popularly known as immune regiments. Uh, and so immune regiments uh, were largely African-American so, uh, uh, troops uh, who were used uh, in order to do the work in Cuba that, uh, that many other folks uh, refused to do. And what is really important and this is something that I discovered uh, through going through some footnotes is that it wasn't only African-American men. In fact, African-American women uh, decided that they too uh, wanted to showcase their patriotism uh, by, uh, by serving as immune nurses. And so you had African-American women, um, uh, women who had to deal with the myth uh, of, of, of Black people being immune uh, and the truth of the fact that, well, you know, whether or not Black women are immune to yellow fever, this is something that, that they are going to risk. Uh, they're going to risk it in order to uh, uh, show that they are patriots as well. And so you have between 32 and I'd say around 90 African-American women uh, who also go to Santiago, Cuba, uh, to serve uh, as immune nurses. And these nurses, uh, they, uh, they worked, uh, and it was in fact, you know, a yellow fever outbreak. Um, and that's one of the things that the Spanish-American War is really known for, uh, is that yellow fever played such a large role. Uh, and so you had black women who uh, were uh, were taking care of sick soldiers, who also, you know, were cleaning, uh, uh, doing janitorial work, and also were helping to bury the dead. And this also happened to African American soldiers as well. Even some of the African American soldiers who weren't enlisted as immune uh, regiments, uh, they themselves still uh, 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 were put in the play in in the circumstance of having to to work in these immune conditions. Uh, And one of the things that was really sad is that there was so much, uh, uh, I would say, um, um, a sense of pride and a belief that perhaps that they were immune. But the longer they remained uh, in these uh, fever camps, they too became sick. Uh, And so this became um, just a a really unfortunate situation where you have <laughs> black soldiers writing back to uh, uh, black newspapers uh, on the mainland saying that, listen, you know this belief that we were immune was in fact false, and now we're worried that we don't we don't even know that if we die here if our uh, if the nation cares enough about our bodies to repatriate us back uh, and so you had what I sort of began to think about as this existential crisis of citizenship. What does it mean for for people to serve a country which it's not clear whether the the country itself is invested uh, in in honoring you. And it's why I think that the notion of of honor is such a loaded term historically for us to think about what it meant for people to to hope that perhaps that that their country uh, did honor them. But uh, the reality of of what occurred once um, most black soldiers came back to the United States is that their statuses hadn't changed as much as as they wanted, as as they had hoped. Uh, And so this becomes, for me, uh, an important way of looking at uh, the beginning of the 20th century and African-American political progress uh, through the military, and that this, in fact, would always be uh, an ongoing struggle to, to, to sort of tell America that Black folks are patriotic, and, um, and so that is, that's the beginning of the book. And that is why, that is at least the first part of Contagions uh, is the idea of thinking about the notion of immunity. And I'll say one final thing about immunity is that in addition to the idea of immunity talking about the actual notion of biological immunity, the myth that black people were immune to yellow fever, immunity is also uh, uh, a term that in the late 19th century, uh, it was very clear to African Americans that immunity is is part of the Fourteenth Amendment, um, and in terms of talking about the idea of of, of the kinds of uh, privileges uh, um, of citizenship, uh, and so there's a line that you know this notion of that you know what privileges, what immunities of citizenship will um, will will Americans and African Americans uh, be able to reap from their from their service, uh, and so this of, so no, we don't use the term immunity today, and and that in most cases, uh, legally, we still use that notion of immunity. Uh, you, when you look at uh, African American newspapers, it's very clear that that many of the editors understand uh, the uh, the Fourteenth Amendment as, as as privileging the notion of immunities and rights of citizenship. So I began to think about that immunity as a phrase uh, that has different fa- facets. Uh, and that 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 African-American political uh, leaders were very, very clear that when they saw immune regiments and immune soldiers and immune nurses, that they were also talking, they saw them as metaphorically uh, um, uh, being uh, the folks that would help uh, the broader African-American community to gain rights or immunities of citizenship.
0: Well, how were how the women, uh you know, uh, found or recruited?
1: So they, this is for me, one of my favorite uh, uh, stories uh, that uh, they uh, w- were recruited largely uh, by the efforts of one woman, uh, Na- Nama Yoka Gertrude Curtis and uh, also known as Nama Curtis. Uh, Nama Curtis uh, uh, was, uh, was a, a self uh, uh, defined and understood black woman. But today, you know, we would probably call her a mixed race woman. Uh, um, she was uh, of um, uh, sort of Native and uh, German and African ancestry, um, and uh, that her that her Native ancestry uh, was rooted in in Delaware, uh, uh, sort of understood as the Delaware Moors, um, and. Uh, she uh, was uh, married to a, uh, a prominent doctor in DC uh, a black doctor who worked at Freedmen's Hospital uh, and she was understood as a sort of a, as a socialite a social maven um, and also uh, someone who was very politically active and uh, let's say in uh, in 1893 uh, uh, the Curtis family lived in uh, um, Chicago and they uh, uh, they were. Uh, they tried to get a housing or apartment in a building uh, uh, that was a white-only building, um, and um, but she, uh, uh, she, she fought it, and uh, and she and her family were able to actually stay in the building uh, that uh, uh, that uh, that they had, uh, you know, uh, uh, signed up for, um, and so she knew early on. Uh, that she wanted to to really fight for uh, for the rights of African-Americans. And she understood that that colorism and racism was something that that would affect her, even though that she was someone who could pass for white. But she actually, uh, she refused to pass for white. And she would use the kind of light-skinned privilege that she had in order to advocate uh, for uh, broader issues in the African-American community. Uh, She herself uh, was a lifelong Republican, uh, and so she was very clear, uh, uh, I mean, as were most African Americans of the day, they were Republicans, and she thought the Republican Party uh, could, in fact, uh, uh, was was the standard bearer of African American rights. So in 1898, uh, she was contacted um, uh, by members uh, uh, of the, the Surgeon General's Office and the US military to actually go and recruit African-American women. Uh, And so she left from from Washington DC, traveled south uh, um, uh, to uh, New Orleans, uh, and she went to black churches. And she said, hey, listen, this is a fantastic opportunity for for black women to show uh, their investment uh, in the nation by signing up to work as immune nurses. What's wonderful about this story for me is that, that that you have a moment in this at the end of the of the 19th century, where many uh, of the uh, of the training schools for nurses were segregated, uh, and so it was very. So there there were uh, different black schools uh, that 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 did allow uh, that definitely had uh, trained nurses, but when it came to the nurses that they took uh, to uh, Cuba, there was a range, uh, and in fact, uh, some of the nurses that that were selected. Uh, were nurses who were older, and some of the nurses had, in fact, served during the Civil War. Uh, And so you had a range of young and old nurses uh, who came together, nurses of color, who decided that, in fact, this is what we have to do in order to to show our loyalty to the nation. Uh, And so what is frustrating for me in terms of, of being a historian is that one, I'd never heard of this story. So as much as it's actually like, it's like, oh, it's great, you know, I discovered something. I was like, wait a minute, this is a story that we should all know uh, what happened to this story. And so it took a lot of work to even to try to find any narratives of the nurses themselves. And so often the narratives that, that did exist uh, were, uh, were sort of sensationalized um, stories uh, in, uh, um, in newspapers which characterize uh, the women as mammies. Uh, and so the women themselves seem to be cognizant that they were being characterized in, 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 that, in, in that framework. And so when they had an opportunity to speak, they would often choose the youngest and, let's say, the college-educated nurses to speak on their behalf, where you have, you know, very sort of articulate, erudite sort of uh, discussions of, of their, their labor. Um, but one of the, 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 the greatest, for me, the greatest... Uh, uh, narratives that I found. It was from a uh, a, a black nurse uh, from New Orleans uh, uh, who was tracked down by by a journalist uh, at her home after uh, the uh, uh, the war had ended. And uh, the nurse, her name was Nurse Toddy, and Toddy uh, would only consent uh, to being interviewed uh, about her about her experiences if she could first uh, talk about. Um, the, uh, the discrimination she and her fellow nurses faced once they arrived back to the United States uh, and they dealt with uh, uh, racism and discrimination in public conveyances. So basically once these, these nurses who by this time, you know, were veterans, uh, they came back to the US in New York City when they uh, took their train uh, um, to the South, they realized that by their very number and by their race and their gender, uh, their car had become the Jim Crow car. Uh, and so, you know, they weren't treated as, as veterans, uh, you know. And one of uh, Toddy's, uh, uh biggest frustration uh, was that, um, that not only were men also on uh, their, uh, their, uh, their train car, but they smoked in their presence. And so you have this idea of women sort of really saying, wait a minute, you know, that I'm a woman. I don't care, you know, uh, who you are. I'm a woman. You don't smoke in my presence. Uh, this is a problem. Uh, and the fact that she was able to say that the, my conditions for telling you my story uh, uh, are are based upon me being able to tell someone what we experienced, and that this itself, you know, uh, is something that 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 that, that was beneath uh, uh, anyone uh, to be treated in this way. I, I just found it fascinating, and I'm just I'm very happy that that. At least these stories uh, are beginning to come out. So, uh, because I don't want to be the only person, you know, that that works on this this story, I hope other people are able to come along and to dig out more stories. Uh, is That there's also a second uh, idea of contagion that's part of the uh, of the, the title, uh, which is I would say in many ways more more salacious notion. Uh, but to think about uh, the Houston riot. Uh, um, um, I mean, this was an important moment in which um, um, African-Americans were really trying to reckon with the fact of, you know, uh, that the strategies that had been pursued in 1898, uh, it was really, really clear that the end of that of, of, of that war, that the political situation hadn't changed uh, so much. In many ways, I would argue that those soldiers uh, and nurses had changed much more than the country had. Uh, and so, so you're bringing the, this new consciousness back to the to the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like, well, what's going on? How come the world isn't seeing us in a new way? And so, uh, and so then, you know, we're seeing uh, uh, at the end of the Spanish-American War, you know, we then begin to see uh, the colonization of the Philippines. <laughs> you know, and so you're seeing uh, soldiers who are continuing to say that, all right, well, I'm going to decide that, I could stay in the United States and, and deal with, with racism, or I can be a part of, let's say, imperial troops. And so one of the soldiers who really, uh, who I, I spent a lot of time uh, thinking about, uh, who was best friends with the boys, was Charles Young. And Charles Young uh, was the third African-American who graduated from West Point, And he, he ended up being the first black colonel uh, um, um, ever you know, um, in American history. Uh, but he was controversially forced to retire on the eve of World War I, uh, largely because uh, there were white senators and white o- officers who refused uh, to, uh, to salute a black man. And Charles Young was brilliant, right? Uh, and so at this moment, you know, this crushed him because he himself understood himself as, as being uh, uh, loyal to both race and loyal to country. Uh, and I think that he himself sort of embodies uh, some of the contradictions of what it means. Uh, uh, Fred, sort of what 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 you're saying, what you said about the idea, what does it mean you know to, to continue to fight uh, for a country that refuses to respect you? So he himself uh, represents that. So though he himself didn't uh, serve during World War I, you know you you still need lo- uh, the US military needed lots of African Americans to serve. Uh, and so the When you think about the Harlem Hellfighters and um, the uh, famous band leader uh, uh, James uh, Europe, Jim Europe, and Noble Sissel, well, why don't you tell us
2: a little bit about? I don't know about them.
1: Okay, yeah. So you know, uh, a thumbnail, (laughs) a thumbnail. Yeah, I'll say so. um, So James Europe and Noble Sissel were band leaders uh, um, in the nineteen teens, um, and um, and they were really part of, let's say, the dance crazes of the time. Um, and, uh, but they also wanted power uh, in terms of a kind of social power. Um, and as musicians, they realized that, well, the only power we can have in Harlem itself is, is if we are recognized, uh, not just you know, in terms of New York City, but nationally and internationally. So when World War Two uh, began uh, to excuse me, World War I uh, began, uh, to, uh, began to begin to percolate. Um, it was uh, Jim Europe who who went to Noble uh, and said, "Hey, listen, you know we should join the military." Uh, and Noble says, "Was like you're crazy." He's like, "Why would I?" It's like, it's like it's like I'm a musician." He's like, "No, no, no. Let's be band leaders um, and and be a part of these military bands." Um, and see if we can actually get this notion of, of honor and be patriots for the nation. Uh, and so, you know, Noble's like, okay, let's do it. Uh, and, uh, and they had a few connections with, uh, with some uh, um, um, uh, folks in the 369. Uh, and so that was the Harlem Health Fighter, that's where uh, they were stationed. Um, and Europe and Sissel also traveled to Puerto Rico uh, because there was this belief that Puerto Ricans were great, like uh, uh, um, uh, musicians in terms of wind instruments. So, 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 so they so they brought a bunch of Puerto Ricans who were part of this 369th as well, um, and, and so they made it over to uh, 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 to France, um, and they began to serve, and they really became sort of the sight and sound of of the new sort of let's say American soft power in the sense of. Uh, what does it mean to not only have Americans represented uh, uh, musically, uh, but have Black Americans uh, sort of, you know, showing our French uh, allies that we uh, uh, are, are 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 representing American democracy? And so, th- not only did the Harlem um, uh, Hellfighters serve as band leaders, they also uh, uh, the 369 uh, were one of the few units who also uh, served uh, uh, Black units who served along uh with french units as well uh, and so uh and so many uh, of, of of uh the the soldiers uh you know got medals of war from serving in france as well but in order to think about this notion of contagion this is something that i find really fascinating um because we have to talk about the idea of sex and sexuality so one of uh so what, we have this notion of black soldiers being seen as immune But once we move to World War II, it's almost as if they are seen as contagious. And they're contagious uh, in multiple ways. Both the idea of you having band leaders, uh, uh, you know, travel around France and really spread jazz to France. And that's one of the ways when people understand the Harlem Hellfighters is that that they brought uh, jazz to France. Uh, They famously, once they arrived uh, uh, from the crossing uh, in France, uh, they sort of played a kind of like a jazzed version of, of, the, of the French National uh, Anthem. Um, and it took apparently the French soldiers a while to realize that what they were, what you know, what they were doing. Uh, and all of a sudden, it, when they realized that, oh, this is our National Anthem, but it's just, it's done in this jazzy sort of way. All of a sudden, everyone snapped to attention. Uh, and so that's something that that both uh, French writers and, uh, and Noble Sissel writes about. Uh, but there was, and so it was a sense that as they as they traveled France, that they were transmitting notions of what it meant to be a Black American. Uh, but you had uh, white uh, doctors uh, uh, who were in the military and white soldiers who, in fact, wanted French uh, people to respect Jim Crow and to respect uh, the American color line, uh, specifically when it came to uh, uh, soldiers' uh, relationships with uh, with white French women. So. Um, So this wasn't just, uh, there were a number of ways in which uh, white American soldiers and officers were able to to sort of legislate uh, the relationship between uh, black soldiers and white French women. And one of them was a medical way. Uh, And it was based upon the idea that black soldiers uh, were uh, were very sexually active uh, and that they themselves uh, had uh, venereal diseases. And so there was a belief that black folks, you know, um, had higher rates of BD, uh, and it was because they were licentious, um, that they didn't respect, you know, the sanctity of, of marriage. Uh, and so this stigma followed black soldiers as they as they crossed uh, over to France. And you had two uh, white American doctors who, who joined the military, who were able to institute Uh, a a system of prophylaxis, an experimental notion of prophylaxis, uh, um, which they tested upon black soldiers. And so this involved uh, using um, silver, well, first it was silver compounds, uh, which were injected into the urethra, uh, held for five minutes uh, before letting it pass. And then on after that, mercury chloride uh, was made into a paste and that was also applied to the genitalia. Now, the idea about this, this was actually a, uh, a process adopted from New Zealand doctors, uh, is that if you thought that you had had a sexual contact with someone who may have, have uh, had a, um, a sexually transmitted disease or infection, but because uh, the white doctors themselves were very clear, and if you read uh, their uh, uh, their own memoirs, they were like, we didn't want uh, 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 black soldiers having sex with white, with white women in France. For black soldiers, as specifically those who worked uh, as dock workers uh, in France, uh, whenever they left the base and came back on, there was an assumption that they had gone and had sex with a woman. And so they had to be punished. And so when they came back onto the base, they had to go through the system of prophylaxis. And it became very clear that prophylaxis was being used in a punitive way in order to, to basically teach black soldiers that you know that we if we can't stop you from having sex with, with white women we're going to make you yeah. uh, deal with the pain of prophylaxis upon your return, uh, and so this was something that uh, that 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 Hugh Hampton Young, who is known today uh, in some uh, in some quarters as the father of American urology, he was uh, the doctor who uh, who adopted this practice. Uh, and uh, and he and David Walker, Dr. David Walker was another uh, a doctor. Uh, they both uh, uh, worked at Johns Hopkins. Uh, they talked about the amazing uh, effects of prophylaxis, uh, and they they tested on black soldiers. Um, and when when I read uh, their uh, when I look at uh, their numbers and their notes, you know it's hard for me to say that prophylaxis did not have any impact, right? So, because one of the questions that I often get is that, well, how successful was prophylaxis? Well, I can say one thing is that once uh, prophylaxis, uh, once the war ended, uh, prophylaxis wasn't a, uh, uh, something that was adopted uh, by the US medical uh, uh, world, right? And so there's something to be thought about, well, how successful was this? But it wasn't
2: a treatment of the disease. It was a treatment of the behavior. Well, of oh, the Here Bingo, Connie. Yeah.
0: Yeah, They've true. tried all
2: kinds of things to keep black men from having sex with white women, period. Yeah.
1: This really was a way of, of, of punishing black men. Um, but what's also interesting is that because the numbers do seem to uh, uh, to fall, and I think that it wasn't just the idea of uh, the treatment, but it was also a sense of of will among black men, right? So black men often, you know, and you, when I read, read some of the testimonies, they were very clear in World War One, is that, listen, you know, we're being tarnished as being the general race. And the only way in which we can actually um, uh, resist this is by, 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 by being abstinent. And so you see these, uh, these these ideas of a kind of masculine will, that we are refusing uh, to have sex uh, because we believe in our families uh, um, and our communities back home. And so you have these competing ideas uh, between folks being seen as contagious uh, 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 and which I think is also something that, that the idea of spreading jazz to France added on that, that, that sort of mythos uh, that, that black men were infecting the French population with this new art form um, but you also had Black men sort of saying that, you know what, no, that you will not tarnish uh, our, our honorable service. Uh, and, uh, and if you are uh, infected with a venereal disease, then you have to be treated uh, um, uh, by, by the prophylactic treatment. Uh, and so it's an interesting way in which Black masculinity, I think, was, 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 was being negotiated by
3: these soldiers. But the art form was very widely accepted and embraced you know, I mean, some might have said, like the people who were against rock and roll here and said it was the devil's music and all that, but it's still, it was accepted and, and wildly you know, popular. So those, this is just one, the antis are just uh, one viewpoint and, and an unsuccessful viewpoint because the jazz spread in France through high and low uh, levels of the society. I mean, big deal composers accepted it and people were swinging, you know, swinging all over the place. Josephine
2: Baker became one
3: of the most famous women in the world. So the notion, so it wasn't just viewed, obviously, it wasn't contagion to some, but not to others.
1: Right, exactly. For some it was, I mean, you know, and there's so many ways in which contagion can be viewed in a a negative framework, but the idea of sort of this infectious rhythm can be viewed in a way which people are like, yeah, you know, it's like, it's a trend, it's a style. And I think that one of the things that happened for black soldiers, and I've been able to to sort of find more evidence for black men than I have for black women, but black men, when they were in France, they saw themselves as not only desiring subjects, but they saw themselves as desirable. And so what does it mean, you know, if you are living um, in, in a world which is telling you that as a black man, that you have no rights, and then all of a sudden you go to this other country and people, in fact, actually, you know, they're like, oh, thank you. You know, we love you. We love your music. This is an amazing moment. And so that itself, I think, you know, uh, that we should take seriously uh, as that is being a transformative experience for, for Americans. And also something that I think that it, it, that was part of the problem for some of the white American uh, soldiers and officers is that they were witnessing this. And so they were witnessing a new way in which Black people uh, were being viewed and that itself, you know, had a way of fracturing their own senses of identity, which was premised upon white supremacy.
2: It, it, it's just been in the last week or so that we've seen what looks like credible uh, evidence that uh, Dwight Eisenhower's mother uh, w- had partly black ancestry.
3: Well, that was always said.
2: oh I didn't know black that. Community, this is good Gossip.
3: <laughs> no, no I, I, I mean, as more
2: than gossip, as, as uh, genealogy that looks like it's pretty solid, right. and Gene Edward Smith's biography of Eisenhower, uh, the most recent really large biography of Eisenhower, <laughs> drives it home that it was Eisenhower and not Truman who really forced the uh, military to integrate. Truman uh, ordered it, but he didn't really drive it home. Eisenhower did. He didn't know about his black heritage, did he? Who's to say? Who's to say? I mean, uh, this mosaic is so complex. Yeah. Uh, As you were talking about Buffalo Soldiers and I thought, uh, I've lived essentially all of my adult life either. Well, I grew up in the Midwest and I've lived uh, from law school onward in the West. uh, And there were black cowboys everywhere. And now in the last uh, 30 years, well, since 1978, we've seen the LDS church, which is a really big influence, uh, just go all in on uh, race doesn't matter. Uh, And uh, so I've seen uh, LDS client families of mine uh, have just in the space of uh, literally a couple of years go from, Trump Republicanism to virulent uh, anti-Trumpism and the Black Lives Matter uh, movement becoming paramount in the eyes of a 91-year-old woman matriarch client of mine because she has uh, three great-granddaughters who are black and and uh, a grandson who is black and so you know it just sort of hit her that oh my god. Uh, I have my progeny who are at risk. This thing is all so incredibly much more complicated. And and God, uh, Cree, what a uh, what a wonderful thing you're doing.
1: Thank you so much. Um, I mean, I'll uh, Kent, you asked, you know, what my uh, my next projects are, and I'll sort of, you know, maybe conclude with that. And that um, uh, so Charles Young, who I mentioned, um, he. Uh, He spent his life uh, being uh, a huge fan of Toussaint Louverture, General Toussaint Louverture, uh, the general uh, uh, of the Haitian revolution. And so he was his own historian, but he spent, um, um, uh, after living in in Haiti um, as a military attache, he started writing a play uh, about Toussaint Louverture. Uh, And that play he worked on until he died. Uh, And he died in, uh, uh, he was stationed in Liberia, but he died in Nigeria. But uh, And that play has always been unpublished. Uh, and so uh, I, in my third chapter, I was able to, to find a, a, a copy of that unpublished play. Wow. Uh, and I write about it. And so one of the things I want to do uh, is to republish uh, this play, this play that's never been published. Uh, and it's such an interesting take on, on Toussaint L'Ouverture. You get a sense of, of how... Young himself saw himself as Toussaint, you know, uh, and so there's an interesting story with that. Um, so that's part one. Um, the second project is that often when we think about Black soldiers uh, after World War II, uh, really in many ways popularized by Colin Powell, who talked about life in Germany for Black soldiers as being a breath of freedom, we think about Europe as being the space in which Black, uh, black people are drawn to. Um, but I also found some, uh, some information of um of black germans uh who survived the nazi regime after world war ii who in fact said you know what i'm actually done with germany i want to go to the united states uh, and so i found one particular woman uh who uh, was was interviewed uh uh in the pittsburgh courier uh in 1946 who says quite openly to uh, a black reporter that you know what I'm actually very happy. Uh, uh, I'm happy leaving uh, Germany, and I I'm I'm going to marry a black soldier, and I'm going to move to the States. You know, and the and the the soldier, the interviewer was William Gardner Smith, who uh, wrote a book. Actually, this book, "Last of the Conquerors," um, and uh, and he himself becomes a uh, a uh, a black ex, 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 expatriate who who dies in France. But this woman, in fact, does move to the United States. Uh, and she moves to Buffalo, New York, and she only died in 2013. So I am really interested in this woman's story, and so I want to to see if I can find more. I know that her uh, her grandfather uh, came to Germany uh, uh, from Africa uh, to uh, to to basically perform in what we now call human zoos, uh, and so uh, so there's this really kind of strange, you know. Uh, Thrilling history of her life, and I'm interested in sort of looking at her life um, um, as a as a new way of thinking about what it means to be African American.
3: Because we have, she, we have historians here, Curry, in our German in our German department, who uh, have looked into these people. Do you know Hans Masakoy that used to write for Ebony? I indeed, yeah, yeah. I mean, amazing story. Exactly. So it's yeah. like well, Hans. Hans wrote about that, um, and. Um, uh, quite a bit, but they have a whole. Um, if you don't know them here at U of I'll send you the information because I'd love they, that they've had little meetings here where they come and talk about the uh, um, Afro Germans during World War II, what they what they saw and experienced during World War II growing up in Germany at that time.
1: I'd, I'd love, I'd thank you so much. Yeah, yeah, that'd be great.
0: We'd like to thank you for coming on, and it was really. Uh great experience thank you so much
1: thank you all so much for the invitation um and 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 thank you all for for this this podcast it's wonderful and i think that i'm glad that i love the format of podcast because you know it's actually another way of preserving you know and creating its own archive and you know i'm i love archives so uh, so uh thank you for, for for being a small part of this great thing you all are doing
0: okay thank you so much And that's it for episode 17 of The Last Negroes at Harvard podcast. The author is Carrie Polk. The name of the book is Contagions of Empire, Scientific Racism, Sexuality, and Black Military Workers Abroad, 1898 to 1948. I'm Kent Garrett, and you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard.